No, I need my coffee. I always have my coffee when I do the intro. You know that. Everybody knows that. <sighs> now that I have my coffee, I'm ready for the intro. Where's the script? <clears throat> How do you know if you've made it as a franchise? Millions of dollars is a good start. Being the highest grossing film of all time certainly helps. And millions of fans going to see your movie dozens of times each is a pretty good marker too. But when do you know you've really made it big? When legendary comedian Mel Brooks decides he's going to do a parody of your movie. If you think you've heard similar likenesses to names like Captain Lone Star, The Evil Dark Helmet, or Princess Vespa, you would most certainly be right. Spaceships? We've got those. Laser battles? Absolutely. Daring rescues and escapes? That's what stunt doubles are for. Referential humor? May the Schwartz be with you. But don't be fooled, he only makes it look easy. Challenging the entire science fiction genre to not take itself quite so seriously, Brooks creates an amazing blend of memorable characters, tongue-in-cheek special effects, and hilarious jokes that put most other parody films to shame. Don't believe us? Well, listen up, because this is the finale to this show's first spectacular season, and there's only one podcast that would dare give you the raspberry. So gas up the Winnebago, put away your dolls, load up your match luggage, and put on your Schwartz ring, because we're starting... then... No, we're starting now, not then. We already passed then. We're at now now. We can't go back to then. We passed then, just now. When will then be now? Soon. It's Spaceballs the Movie, coming up next on Nostalgia Bomb. Hello and welcome to the season finale of Nostalgia Bomb. I'm your host, Brian Huff, and I'm finding myself completely surrounded by assholes. Lots and lots of assholes. I've got the whole gang with me here today to talk about, and I I say this all the time, but I really, really, really mean it this time, my favorite movie of all time. But before we get into that, I've got to introduce everybody that is with me here. Of course, I've got Andy Dino. Hello, Andy. Hey, Brian. I'm a mog, half man, half dog. I'm my own best friend. That, that that definitely summarizes Andy. And of course, I have Stephen Blue. Stephen, welcome to the show. Always a pleasure. Who dares enter the sacred and awesome presence of the everlasting know-it-all? And last but not least, the newest edition, and we'll talk a bit about this at the end of the show. But Joe Perez, hello, Joe. Well, hello there. Now you see that evil will always triumph. Because good is dumb. Joe got the best one. I'm kind of jealous. Well, I mean, it just fits. I'm short to begin with. So <laughs> I was kind of thinking, you know? <laughs> so, I, was, I was surprised you didn't give yourself a, a, some cheesy one-liner. Oh, oh, I got it too. Hold on. On this ship, you're to refer to me as idiot, not you, Captain. I got. Oh, one. now oh, that's one. appropriate. It is totally appropriate. I am not afraid to admit that. So you can probably guess what we're going to do, but it wouldn't be a nostalgia bomb unless we had a cool musical intro. There is no better way to end our first season than to do the Mel Brooks classic, 
Spaceballs. Blue, you want to tell the one person that may be left out there that has not seen this movie what they're in for? Uh, so, for the uninitiated, uh, Spaceballs is a comedy spoof that was released in 1987. It parodies pretty much every sci-fi classic that had been out to that date. Its list of actors is absolutely huge, so suffice to say that pretty much everybody is somebody. Uh, plot-wise, the villainous Dark Helmet and his subordinate Colonel Sanders plot to attack the nearby planet Druidia under the command of the Spaceballs leader, President Scroob. They attempt to kidnap a royal from the planet, Princess Vespa, and her droid Dot Matrix, who are promptly rescued by an intergalactic scoundrel named Lone Star and his animalistic sidekick Barb. Is this sounding familiar yet? Uh, while making their escape, they crash land on a desert planet and meet the mighty mystic and merchandising mogul Yogurt. The princess is re-kidnapped, uh, the heroes give chase, there's a couple of big fights, the good guys win, and uh, you get a few last-minute gags, life lesson, roll credits. I'm so glad you're not the narrator for this film. <laughs> that was the concise version. <laughs> so, Spaceballs. I don't even know where to start with this. Andy, the, first off, like... Multi-generational, I think it sings more to nerds than anybody else just because that extra sci-fi knowledge really kind of makes you get every single joke in this. But this is just such an incredibly hilarious movie. Well, it's an incredibly hilarious movie done by someone who knows comedy, right? I mean, you're talking about Mel Brooks, who knows comedy well. Look, look back through any movie he's done. And because of the sci-fi theme... Of course, it's going to scream out to any nerd. Anybody that watched Star Wars, you know, or any of those movies will thoroughly enjoy this movie. Yeah, there's a little bit of Star Wars, a little Star Trek. There's Alien. There, I mean, I should really go through, like, catalog all the references. And and some people will say that maybe, Joe, that that kind of hurts its legacy a bit because you do need this, like, plethora of background knowledge to really get everything. But... To me, even though when I was a kid I didn't have that kind of knowledge, I still found it funny. Well, and, and I think it's one of those things where I think everybody does a disservice when they start talking about you need to have that encyclopedic knowledge of sci-fi or nerdery. You don't. You can go into this completely blind. I've sat down family members who have never seen this movie and just let them run through, and they – pick up on the references if they get them, and if not, there's still funny moments. I mean, seeing a chestburster dance across a counter, even if you don't know what a chestburster is, it's an animatronic thing singing and dancing after it just bursts out of somebody's stomach. Come on! That's comedy gold! Exactly. I mean, there are so many moments, and, and I will admit, Blue, that it is a bit funnier if you get some of those extra references, but there are a lot of those moments that are kind of just funny in a vacuum with, without that kind of background knowledge, and I think that's why this movie is so endearing to those of us that can see both sides of it. I, I'm glad he brought up that particular scene. When I first saw this film, uh, you know, it was on VHS probably uh, a year after, so, you know, 88 area. The thing is, my parents were very, very strict about R-rated movies. I hadn't seen Alien at that point. And when the guy, you know, John Hurt, keels over for a second, and when the chestburster comes out, and, uh, and John Hurt looks up and says, Oh, no, not again. That joke, for instance, is completely lost on anybody who uh, isn't quite aware of the in-joke. I mean, it, it, it's kind of a parody of itself, like, oh, this happened before. How did he survive that? I think the chestburster dancing across the table is funny, primarily because it comes out and it's snarling like a raving 
beast it's going to attack everybody in the restaurant and then then it just you know does the the song and dance routine instead i think that's what makes it funny so i found myself enjoying this film so much more after having gone back and and watched it this time around and i admit i've watched this probably you know once a year for several years but knowing directly the reference from Planet of the Apes, knowing the direct uh, uh, correlation that it had to Alien. All these little things make things so much more enjoyable. And because, that is a gr- as a seven-year-old, I have to say the part I found most funny, only because it was topically appropriate at the time, was the, you know, it's not just a spaceship, it's a transformer. I, I as a seven-year-old, laughed and laughed and laughed. And I, that is one of the things about this movie that I don't think it gets enough credit for, but for those of us that saw it like late 80s, you know, whether you saw it right when it came out in 87 or, or onward, it gets funnier with time because not only do you get a bigger knowledge of sci-fi and get those in-jokes, but let's be honest, Andy, there's a ton of adult humor. I remember the first time I got the crazy line where he's like, But she gives great helmet. Like, I didn't get that the first time I heard it. I was like, okay, I don't know what that means. And then you get older, and then it's like, oh, now I understand why everybody else in the room was laughing. Yeah, it's a, it's, it does a really good job of keeping everyone invested. I mean, this is something that we enjoyed as kids, and, like, I'll fire it up any time, day or night. Doesn't matter. It's like, oh, hey, space balls, click, and it's done. Yep. And there's a lot of just uh, sight gags that are funny. There's, you know, the the uh, stunt doubles when they're being chased. I, I think the whole Pizza the Hut thing is hilarious, even if maybe you don't understand it's supposed to be Jabba the Hut. Like, you're just laughing because it's a giant pizza, and, and you know, he's, like, eating himself, and the, and the uh, guy with him is eating him as well. There's a lot of those moments that are hilarious. I, I think that um, Lone Star is just hilarious with a lot of the screw-ups that he has when he's trying to talk and the things that he says. There's a lot of things to grab on there, Joe, that, that don't necessarily need that knowledge that I think are what maybe initially locked it in for the younger audience who maybe didn't have that background yet. Well, in a perfect example, Michael Winslow, right? Radar technician extraordinaire, but I didn't know he was from the Police Academy movies as a kid. Yeah. I didn't get the fact that he was like this comedy genius that just happened to me in this movie. He was just making funny mouth noises and was able to do all sorts of cool stuff. And I'm just like, that's amazing. Yep. And, it, it, like, and there's tons of you – know, like, everybody said it on the, the head there. There's all these wonderful little moments throughout the entire movie that makes it very easy for children to grab onto. And you, you touch on this it's a movie that grows with you too. And as you got older, you learned more of those references. The movie became funnier and funnier and funnier. And that's what makes it such a cultural staple as far as a nerdery goes is because we grew up with it. We grew into all those references. And I'm sure if I go back and watch it for the 847 billionth time that I'll probably catch something else that I missed the first time around because Mel Brooks hid so many things in the background and so many subtle, like subtle nods. It's just, it's a timeless movie. It, it, it is. Comp- this is the epitome of timeless and not timeless in the way that we've discussed, say like when Andy and I talked about the Princess Bride, like that was kind of a period piece that told this really great story that kind of related to people. This is 
something that you can enjoy at pretty much any age. And even if you were to take like an eight or 10 year old and sit them down now and watch it, they'd find parts that were hilarious. Now they might laugh at things you don't want them to laugh at, like the surrounded by assholes comment, but they still will find it funny. And then as they mature and hopefully are raised correctly and mature as good nerds and, <laughs> and they kind of learn all these, these sci-fi tropes, they find it even more hilarious. But things like the Colonel being named Colonel Sanders and uh, a lot of like the raspberry jam thing is hilarious. The, the, the thing video the, cassette the video case cassette yeah where they break the fourth <laughs> wall like that is that whole like Even scene the social commentary on merchandising of sci-fi films come on i remember being so disappointed when i was a kid and yogurt goes through and he's like space balls with flamethrower and i'm like mom i need the space balls i didn't wasn't old enough to understand that it was a joke and i was actually disappointed that all those space balls things didn't exist especially the uh the yogurt doll that you pulled the cord and he said maybe schmarts be with you i was like no i want one of those but that's part of the the allure of it blue you you, you think that just the overall parroting uh of everything but you, but you get, a, but it, though even the parts you miss, you almost laugh at yourself later because you like I really thought that all the merchandise was available. Well, I think that's great. Is the, the certain childish naivete. Well, again, I'm not going to say I didn't fall victim to it. I remember the um, you know, have you found anything? We ain't found shit. It, it's certainly a funny line when you're an adult, but as a kid. For me, it was just, oh, my God, he said that word to his superior officer, you know, just bald face. And I was rolling on the floor laughing. And maybe this is what Andy and Joe are kind of getting at, that you have a different appreciation for jokes at different times in your life. Um, Well, nowadays we have the whole, what has that person been in? Or where do I know that voice from? Or this and that. So... What always happens is, especially in a, you know, when you're not in an actual movie theater, what do you do? The film gets paused, or you look at your friend, uh, and you say, where do I know that voice from? And somebody either looks it up, or you do it yourself, and, oh, that's what it's from. This is where archiving comes in. You don't get Pizza the Hut, or you're wondering why everyone's laughing so hard. You find out it's a parody of Jabba the Hut. It, it's all these little things that do kind of add up, that, that you can make this a gradually more enjoyable experience. And it was an absolute cavalcade of stars that were in this movie, especially when you, I mean, even at the time, but when you look back on it, I mean, you look at this list, Andy, you got Bill Pullman, John Candy, Daphne Zuniga, Joan Rivers, Mel Brooks, Rick Moranis, Dick Van Patten, George Weiner, Mike Winslow, Dom DeLuise, John Hurt. I mean, these are people that aren't just like, oh, I kind of know who that is. You know who every single one of these people are. And they went on to do great things or had already done great things. And the fact that you were able to get them all in a movie, let alone a movie of this type is actually a a thing that doesn't get talked about enough. Well, no, it doesn't. And I mean, you've got to give respect to, you know, again, to Mel Brooks and what he has done and what he, you know, has did up to producers. I don't think he's made anything past that. Um, You know, but he always manages to pull these guys and he gets that respect from people. I mean, he's got people there you know, some may may not be as well known as others. Some of them are comedians that are very well known. Others are actors that are well known. Some that are really were popular at the time. Michael Winslow again. Yep. Um, you know, but he's he manages to pull all these people to him, and he's like, "Oh, hey, I want to make a ridiculous movie about you know about science fiction, and I want to put all of you in it." And they're like, "Okay, where do I sign?" 
Yeah, well, exactly. That, that's that's like a staple of comedies, though. Uh, th- this happens a lot. Uh, I mean, what Caddyshack, as a good for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I obviously Rick Moranis leads us into Ghostbusters. I always think about Blues Brothers when I think about you know comedy films that have just umpteen bajillion people in them. The only the only non comedy one I can really think of that has you know everybody is somebody uh, probably something like JFK. Yeah, but I don't. I think it's almost. You would see think it would almost be harder to draw somebody to a comedy of this nature because on paper, I mean, even just hearing you describe it, <laughs> I mean, Joe, this is kind of a ridiculous notion, right? Like, how could anyone look at this on paper and go, "Oh, this is going to be brilliant"? If you didn't just trust that Mel Brooks is going to nail it. Well, in, in back then, and this is kind of interesting too. Rick Moranis, and we talked about this before we started recording, recently gave uh, an interview in which he's talked specifically about the old comedies versus the new comedies. And back then, comedy actors were such a tight-knit family that when one person signed on for something, it just kind of rippled through. And so, like, even if you looked at it and said, this is a ridiculous idea, you're like, well, I'm really good friends with Rick Moranis and I trust his judgment. All right, what the hell? I'll do it. And then it turns into, like, this this big thing where just it just – again, it's that ripple effect back then where that's why you had such a big concentration, especially in those movies like Blue was talking about where you have the same actors going into these different movies all together and playing different parts but still playing off of each other because it was one big comedy family. Yeah, and, one, and- thing I, one thing I feel like I should interject really quick. Um, I was listening to uh, an interview with Mel Brooks, and one of the things he mentioned in Young – excuse me, Young Frankenstein, is the the putting on the Ritz shtick that happened there, the whole thing was Gene Wilder's idea. Mm-hmm. And when when he's just talking about it uh, uh, to Mel Brooks, it sounds ludicrous. But you know, Gene's envisioning it in his head. Brooks humors him. They shoot the whole thing. They go back and look at it and... Mel Brooks says to this day, it's probably one of the most brilliant things he's ever filmed. And I can only imagine how often this happens when you have a set that's just chock full of comedy, brilliant, genius minds uh, and, and, and in any given movie. It's, it's got to be an absolutely amazing experience. To and we on. have one of those scenes in Spaceballs. Yeah. The scene where Dark Helmet is playing with his dolls. That was just a random thought that Mel Brooks had, and he just gave it to Rick Moranis to run with. None of that was scripted. That was just literally, I want you to play with dolls. And Rick Moranis was like, all right. And it was like stuff like that. Like it was just, you could throw ideas off of each other, and you get amazing scenes because they were just completely ridiculous and okay with it. And you're right. You don't get this as much anymore. And everybody was behind this film. Even so, apparently. Mel Brooks had George Lucas read the script before production, and this is how Industrial Light and Magic ended up doing the special effects for Spaceballs. Is because he just found it so hilarious. That, and this is George Lucas. I mean, come on now. This is a guy who's like notoriously stingy with how his properties are treated, despite him abusing them himself. And <laughs> and like he says, Oh, I love it. I love what you're doing here. Here, have my studio to do all the special effects for you. Like, that's crazy. And we just don't. I don't know, and I'm not just talking about like something in this genre, but I don't know that we will ever have movies that just come so organically like this anymore because that culture that Joe just described, I don't know that it exists anymore. I don't think not in the same way, but... No, I'm sorry, Andy, go for it. Well, um, I don't think you see it nearly as much. I mean, everybody now is worried about careers and images and everything like that, and and honestly, if you look at those guys and look at kind of some of the movies they've done, no real actor in their right mind would do like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids 2. 
you know? <laughs> I mean, right. But they were like, hey, this is fun. I can make money. Let's go, you know? And nowadays it's all PR and image and the whole nine yards. You know, you've got guys that have made their living being comic actors now trying to do drama. And it's like, no, go back to what you do, go back to what you know. So here, you know, it was just you had a good group of friends that got together and made movies. Well, it's, it's the independence where things are really, really uh, happening, where you see all kinds of, you know, uh, you know nearly an incestuous, uh, you know, somebody starring in freaking everything uh, during the writer's strike when Joss Whedon was doing uh, Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog because he could get away with that. You know, Nate Fillion, Neil Patrick Harris, Felicia Day, uh, you know, just as a start, you know, Felicia Day has been in so many things from uh, the Guild and Legend of Neil and uh, all of that. Uh, you've got Nathan Fillion, who um, you know, that was right before Castle and obviously after uh, Firefly and all of his guest starring stuff. Neil Patrick Harris, who was on the huge upswing, uh, you know, obviously long after Doogie Howser, but during uh, his his theatrical releases and uh, the Harold and Kumar stuff, uh, I, you know, this is where these things are happening is in the smaller channels. Yep, because I think mainstream Hollywood anymore, Joe, is really about like it's it's become dominated by agents and billing and who's top bill and like it's really really hard for you to do anything organic anymore. And even these like films like The Hangover and Bridesmaids and things like that, they still don't feel like a group of close friends like ab living their way through in a hilarious movie. It just all seems so contrived. And maybe that's just me getting older and bitter, but it just that feeling doesn't seem to be there anymore. And I, I will agree with you on that because it's it's not so much that it's not the opportunity isn't there for the actors to do it if they wanted to. We see little side projects uh, where they do that and we see things where they get together and just kind of shoot things on their own with the independent scenes. But when you get Hollywood involved now, Hollywood's all about being safe. And so when you look at The Hangover, Hangover follows a formula. You look at Bridesmaids, Bridesmaids follows a formula. You look at most comedies that are released right now, there's always a formula involved because that's safe. They don't want to take those risks. Not back in the like in the eighties. The eighties, it was a lot of this was uncharted territory. You had you know people from Saturday Night Live doing their skits and pushing boundaries there, and then translating that over into movies and into the Hollywood scene. And Hollywood was just loving it; it was just eating it up. And now you get to now where everything has to be broken down. You don't you don't get those situations where you can kind of just see these things spring up as often as you would like. But the actors that do want to do that, like Neil Patrick Harris, uh, they will find a way to do it. They will find little projects to do it. They will find personas to latch on to uh, and, and groups of people to do this with. But it's just Hollywood has kind of just beaten that out of sort of the natural movie scene. You almost, like Blue mentioned, you almost have to go to these quote-unquote back channels. Like This is why YouTube and web series have gotten so big. I think one of the best examples for me has been, and I'm going to butcher this, but the one that uh, Jerry Seinfeld does, the comedians getting coffee in cars or whatever it is. Oh, yeah. That is hilarious because there's no script. No one cares what anybody says, and they're just wrong. Like the, the jokes they make. Another perfect example is some of the stuff that Bob Saget has done. Like Bob Saget has done just some some of his funniest stuff has been like random YouTube videos or other like back channel stuff that he's done around particular topics. And it's just because there's that one where they have all the comedians do. There's like this old comedic joke that is really, really dirty. And Bob Saget does it the best. And someone please tell me what it is, because I know it's like a big trope that they all and they go through and they film and 
Bob Saget does this amazing telling of like one of the most disgusting, like grotesque jokes you've ever heard. Yes, the aristocrats. And it's hilarious. And that's where this type of comedy has kind of been pushed where you might have actually seen them, maybe not to love all the aristocrats, but, you know, where you might see something like that get like wide release, like in something like Spaceballs, you know. But you're right. It's not really safe, Andy. And it's a shame because I feel like it's not that Mel Brooks' genius is hard to replicate. It's just – it's like the perfect storm. You had the right man in the right place and the series of films that he did, whether it's Robin Hood, Men and Tice, History of the World, Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein. Like he nailed it almost every time and his only formula was just put a bunch of funny people together, give them a rough framework to work within and let them do what they do best. Well, but that's – again, if you look at the people he got, he got people that can work in that framework, Right. I mean, even if you take the modern take of the producers that he redid with um, Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick. Matthew Broderick. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if you take that and look at them and look at them two together, you're like, ah, it'll be a so-so movie. But then you watch them play off each other. You know, he just – I feel like he had this – I don't know. He would get the chemistry of these people right. And once you put that on screen, it's good. He allowed them a chance to do your thing. Just go. But but even that, and don't get me wrong, because I love uh, the more recent uh, rendition of the producers, but you, everybody is somebody, because mm-hmm. what, uh, Uma Thurman's in that, yep. uh, Will Ferrell's in that, which, I mean, did surprise me, uh, I didn't strike him as a, or he didn't strike me as a Mel Brooks kind of comedian, um, uh, I can't remember his name, uh, the SS officer at the start, um, uh, the director, you know, everybody mm-hmm. is somebody and i feel really bad because i don't have any of my information in front of me well right but if you take that and okay everybody's they're established actors they're comedians they're stuff like that but you still have to have i almost feel like he's good at creating the environment for letting that stuff bloom well he knows it's one of those situations where mel brooks knew who he wanted he had an idea mm-hmm. and any interview you've ever seen or, or or read from him over the course of his entire career he went in with either rough ideas, but he knew who he wanted to fill in the gaps. And everybody had a say. He wasn't draconic in his his command of the set. It was like oh, somebody would come up and say, I think this would be absolutely hilarious. And he'd be like, you're right. That would be absolutely hilarious. Let's do it. And he, he, it was just sort of that thing where he knew the people that needed to feed off of each other, and he made that happen. And, yes, you can have that. And The Modern Producers is a great example of that, even though it's 10 years old at this point. Jesus. Um yeah, but we're even old. then, they were all somebody, but they were all people that played well off of each other. And I'm not saying that that can't happen. You have modern actors that do that really well. Uh, Steve Carell, Will Ferrell, um, Seth Rogen actually falls into that category as well, whether you love him or hate him. A lot of his stuff is improv as well. Uh, and you, John C. Riley, um, these are all people that they kind of carry on in that tradition and had they been around back in the time when we saw you know mel brooks was really making movies i guarantee you they would have all been brought in on that he uh, knew what he should, wanted i feel one of the things i should point out uh going on right now they have a revival of whose line is it anyway and you know whether or not you've got uh, uh you know wayne brady and colin mockery ryan styles aisha tyler and whoever their guest is on top of that you, you just watch them and watch how incredibly well they mesh and i realize that improv is extraordinarily different than scripted acting but it's just so much magic when you see these people in a room and they can create something so hilarious so quickly and we just want more of that like i I agree the talent is there 
like people of the caliber of of the actors and comedians that would be in Mel Brooks movies are out there, but the studios aren't there to back it. The platform isn't there. I mean, and we have to be realistic too, right? Spaceballs only made thirty eight million dollars with a budget of twenty two thousand, and that's not worth the time for most studios anymore. Like, did they, you say twenty two thousand? That seems yeah, twenty two. Sorry, twenty two million is what I meant. <laughs> okay, good, good. I was like, wow, <laughs> inflation, people, inflation. Uh, but you know, you're only talking about a profit, and I know we're talking only, but only a profit of sixteen million. That's really hard when you can pump. 80, 90 million into a superhero movie and, and double your money in three months. And not that I'm playing this whole like Marvel and Disney's feet. I'm just saying like, unfortunately, when there's been enough successful people following the same old formula that other people will follow the same old formula and you can have just as much success and it's safer. It's why when the Hunger Games does good, we get Divergence and we get Maze Runner and then they're going out and trying to find every young adult novel they can <laughs> that they can turn around and remake into a movie because it's a safe bet. And there's not any tolerance for making this type of movie and it only making five or ten million. And and you see it like you'll see these like indie films that will have like one or two major actors in it. Like there's the the um oh what's it called? There's the one with uh, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie that they're in together about the married couple. It's called like By the Sea or something. That's oh, was not the, yeah. not the not the secret no no agent, not, right no not the secret agent. One. They have a new one. <laughs> they have a new one that she's directing. It's called By the Sea, I believe, and it's about the two of them, just like a married couple, and they're like having a tough time, and they're like in a hotel by the sea trying to fix their problems. Like you get things like that. And you get, I mean, even like, I think, you know, speaking of Brad Pitt, like uh, Fury is one that's got a decent amount of good actors in it, you know, kind of a who's who. And Ocean's Eleven probably would be the most obvious one of like, bring a bunch of big names for the sake of bringing big names. But it doesn't have the same feeling because it doesn't feel like they're given the space. And the space and the time. And, and also, like, we can't give, we have to give a lot of credit to Mel Brooks because while all these talents are great, like, he did a good job directing and writing for them to give them just enough structure to tell a story but not so much that they aren't funny in their own right. I am so curious, having this talk about bringing the right team together, what the set of the Expendables movies have been like. Uh, I, I'm, and that's just it. I'm thinking to myself, you've got all these big-name action stars, but action isn't as organic as comedy. I, I wonder how this went. And everything, I, everything in my body is telling me it probably went very, very poorly. Uh, I would, I would imagine it was, it was like we would imagine a bunch of egos in a room, all like they probably only see each other for the two minutes they need to be on screen, and they kind of go off and do their thing. But so I'd like to kind of go back through the movie and just kind of relive our favorite parts. And so I did not prepare you guys at all for this, so on the spot, Andy, what, what, what's your favorite scene from this whole movie? I would have to say one of my favorite scenes is when they do the. Um, the what's happening now, now bit. Oh, don't take that one. That's mine. <laughs> Everybody else behind you in line just went, I need a different one. <laughs> that had, that was just hilarious. No, what happened now, what happening now happens now. Wait, what? That whole bit was just, I thought it was gold. I, I can't watch that. That's like one of the parts I hear coming up. If I've got it playing while I'm doing something else, stop everything. Watch it, and and it is also Mel Brooks is apparently his favorite B 
bit in the whole movie because it is masterfully done. It breaks the fourth wall. The fact that he has space balls for rent already is just absolutely <laughs> well, hilarious. And the, and the fact that the, the rental unit is completely covered in Mel Brooks films. <laughs> yes. It's so well done. And the, and the Mr. Coffee machine just randomly thrown in there. Like, it's so good, especially if you think about where the world was at in the 80s and movie rentals and that kind of thing. Like, it was just like, it's magical. They have this and it's right there and you can watch it. And like, it's what's happening now is happening now. But what happens then? When does that happen? Now. And it's just, it's so Soon. well done. Soon. So, yeah, I, you stole everybody's low-hanging fruit. But yes, that is, that is by far, I think, the best scene in the whole movie. Hands down. So, Blue, not that one. Second favorite. <laughs> um, okay, first thing I'm going to say is I am a very big fan of running gags. So when it starts out with, you know, Mr. Coffee, followed by Mr. Radar, followed by Mr. DVD, I'm sorry, Mr. VHS rental. There was no um, such thing as DVDs. I know, I know. But going down that line of just, again, I love running gags. I thought that was hilarious. Uh, I, I'm actually really uh, glad that uh, Joe told the story about the doll scene because I thought the doll scene was pretty hilarious too. Just the idea of um, how many times does it happen in uh, when you're with your friends and somebody screams, you know, you know, what are you doing? Nothing. I'm not doing anything. Did you see anything? And your friend will appropriately reply, no, sir. I didn't see you playing with your dolls again. And uh, Okay, so I'm going to admit something here live on, on the air. I had uh, had all like my G.I. Joe action figures and I somehow ended up in the possession of a Barbie doll that I would always like have G.I. Joe and Cobra fight over and I'd hide this Barbie doll that I got my hands on because I didn't want any of my friends to know that I had a Barbie doll. <laughs> and so I totally related with that scene when it came up because I was that guy. I had like Barbie be like tied to the Cobra's tank and like you will not get her. I will save you. <laughs> and uh, totally me. So when that came on there, like there was that moment where I like looked over my shoulder to the the spot where I hid the Barbie doll just to hope that nobody <laughs> was watching. So I just outed myself. But, you know, I, I, I found that incredibly hilarious when I saw that. And then I immediately went and moved where I hid my Barbie doll so nobody could find it. <laughs> as, yeah. as Brian glances across from his computer screen and microphone to the same corner. It's still over there on the bottom shelf of the filing cabinet. <laughs> All right, Joe, your turn. We've, we've am... picked the bones. I am a huge fan of literal and pun humor. So my two favorite scenes are combing the beach (laughs) because it's literally a giant comb and jamming of the radar where it's just jam oozing out of it. Because even as a kid, I love really terrible puns and it was fantastic. And it got better when you got older and realized there was this horrible, slight racial undertone with the guy with the hair pick. Oh, so bad. We ain't found. We ain't found shit. It's like (laughs) you sit there with like a real obvious, like it's like so racist. And and only one person would give us the raspberry. And that's the and it was funny as a kid because you're like they just threw raspberry jam at the at the satellite dish that's so great and then when you're older it's just like oh it's a pun I get it it's so funny and when he like reaches and like wipes it off the screen it's like raspberry he <laughs> yes. was so serious about it dude this is the the no like it was just like that that whole like the faux intensity and yeah i'm i'm just i'm a sucker for clean humor i really oh. am well, the, well the, right there with the um uh the ludicrous speed scene the what's the matter colonel sanders chicken 
<laughs> it took me so long to realize what that was about. I was just like, I oh, know, isn't it awful? I didn't, I didn't, and then I, I got that until like the mid nineties. Oh, we, yeah, we didn't now. have KFC when I grew up. Like, I lived in a town that didn't have fast food restaurants yet. So, like, when I finally realized it was Colonel Sanders from KFC, I was like, oh my god, I get it. It's like that's the best joke ever. Oh man. So my two favorite are. Since you guys have taken all the good ones. No. There's still some awesome ones. So just prior to or right after the Raspberry, when you get to see Michael Winslow do his crazy police academy mouth sounds thing, the beeps and the creeps. And like I was just like blown away that he was doing all that with his mouth. Like I thought that was just awesome. And as a kid, I never once questioned whether or not he was capable of doing that with his mouth. I was just like, that is so great. And then the I'm surrounded by assholes bit. <laughs> because I was going to say, if somebody doesn't mention that one. Because as a kid, you were just so pumped they were swearing. Let's just be honest for a second, right? Like, as a kid, you got this weird sort of giddiness when you were watching a movie and they were swearing. Because you knew that your parents would not be super stoked about the fact that you were watching a movie when they were swearing. And when they carried on the first class major sergeant asshole, you're like, yes! Like, I just got through like five minutes of movie. They said asshole like ten times and my parents have no idea. And it was like incredible like and then when he says you know we're surrounded by assholes i i laughed so hard when almost every single person behind him turns around stands up and raises their hand and all the other they all shout yo and exactly i how many assholes do we have on this ship assholes. yeah it it all works so well it's one of those it, it struck me as so Outlandish! You couldn't possibly have that many assholes in one place. And as I glanced from side to side, I wonder if my parents heard me say that out loud. And that I think that was so great because at the age now, Andy, you're a little older, so we'll exclude you from this one. But for those of us who have not uh, hit that old age on the rocking chair, like we were, <laughs> we were pretty young when this movie first came out, and I saw it not when it released, but it was on TV pretty quickly on like TBS or USA or one of those, and. I remember, like, I probably shouldn't have been watching it. There was a bit of, like, haha, I've snuck one by my parents. They just think this is a sci-fi movie like Star Wars. And in reality, like, it's it's kind of bad. And I'm not even 100% sure my parents got all the jokes that they should have gotten, like the good helmet comment. Like, I don't, I think that kind of went over their heads, and I was kind of happy to, to have, as a child, been able to experience a little taboo, you know. I, uh, before any mentions, I should point out really quick that this might just be mid-80s talking. This was still a PG film, despite all the uh, racy lines and humor. Yes, which which we overcorrected on. So not to cross episodes too much, but uh, Veronica and I on Monday had a very good conversation about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles that came out in 1990 and how that was riddled with problems because they wanted to give it a PG-13 rating for, quote-unquote, lots of violence and sexual tension. And yet a movie just three years sooner that probably all like clearly deserved a PG-13 rating uh, didn't even like there's no talk of how that almost didn't get by or any jokes needing to be cut or any of that kind of thing. It kind of showed you how quickly society caught on <laughs> or, or views it differently when it's not in the context of comedy at least. So there's also a lot of amazing characters in this movie and not just played by amazing actors but just such – amazing parody jobs done that like you both recognize them as who they're supposed to be representative of from another universe, but also like as just a really good character on their own. And since uh, Andy got to go first this time, I will let Joe not get his best one picked first. So sorry, Andy, you're going to have to go last, but who's your favorite character? Because there's so many to choose from. 
honestly, my favorite character has to be the minister because it is such a huge like. It's just a thing, right? It's just it's that old ad old guy that's just like he's trying he's trying to do his pomp and circumstance. He's trying to do it right and everything else like that. And then he's like, "All right, you know what? Screw it. You, you, yes, we're good." And it was such a perfect parody of all of the marriage scenes that have been in movies up to this point that I absolutely loved it. And I just love that he, he was not like this loving, doddering like bishop. He was just like he was. Just, I'm done. I'm old. I don't have time. Let's get this over with. Let's just do this quick. I just, yeah, the, and that's great. And it's such and a minor part. A fantastic job, too. Yeah, and, and you're right. Like I, I'm not sure everybody got like the parody that was involved in that particular part. But we there was a, a slew of movies in the 80s that would have these like long, drawn out like wedding scenes. Whether it's like waiting for the person to come profess their love, or you know, going through these ridiculously long vows that are just hilarious. How he's like, that's it, the short version, and then like goes through it real fast. It, it is pretty hilarious, and and takes what is you know still kind of a, a feel good ending and kind of gives it a, a little last jab on the way out the door which and, and i guess i should also point in there that the reason why i love that character so much is because of another movie that came out that year which you guys already talked about but the princess bride because it was such a opposite of that character that i just absolutely loved it yep yep amazing job i, I hands down agree that it is one of the best characters in the whole film all right blue well I remember there was an interview with michael kane not that long ago and one of the things he mentions is his job is to make you not see Michael Caine. It's to make you see that character. And if he comes on screen and even after, you know, a minute or two, you're still seeing Michael Caine and he feels like he's failed. Dark Helmet and Rick Moranis is that character for me because no matter what he's doing, Rick Moranis, for better or worse, will always still be, you know, at least a little bit Rick Moranis. And that is what I love about Dark Helmet. He's... Obviously short of stature, he's got this enormous helmet that's probably overcompensating for something, and yet everyone is terrified of him. And I, I love that. It's like Rick Moranis is getting some kind of begrudging respect, even though he's still kind of a ninny, even though you, you shouldn't take him too seriously. But everyone there, e- even Bill Pullman's character, even Lone Star, you know, he's number one on his hit list. He doesn't want to... Um, mess with the space balls because well obviously because the theme song already did that for us he doesn't want to um uh rescue the princess at first because he's scared of dark helmet and it's it's so wonderful and you've got this amazing dichotomy of you know terrifying person to be feared but nitwit who you shouldn't take seriously who i i always remember bill pullman is holding his hand out and you know putting his hand on the helmet as he's swinging back and forth and back and forth and he's just so tiny and non-threatening so for me dark helmet makes the entire movie and almost like a jackal and hyde type character right like he's got like when the mask down and with the mask up <laughs> and there's always these moments where he's like really menacing and then flips the mask up and it's like i can't even breathe in this thing you know it's well, there, like, yeah there, there's the drinking the coffee then there's the dolls then there's you know when will then be now soon it he keeps going back and forth it, when when the Mercedes comes into the hold and he has this incredibly intimidating speech as, you know, as all of the air is transferred from your planet to ours. And, you know, he, he opens it up. She's not in there. Everyone, you know, grabs for their crotch because they're afraid he's just going to start dispensing justice as it were. It's, it's, it's wonderful. He does such a magnificent job in this role. And I'm, I'm so happy he did it. 
I, I completely agree. Again, like I think that's what's so great because there's no wrong answer to this question. Like there, there's just so many good roles. All right, Andy, give it to us. I'm going to have to go, and one of them is really kind of a low-hanging fruit, but there are, there are two performances that really just kind of stand out to me, and it's Mel Brooks in that one. Just some of the jokes he made and even the things that he poked like he poked it, um, Lucas with, you know, and all the merchandise, you know, his yogurt. Yeah. <laughs> and, and just his, his nod even back to when he played the mayor in uh, Blazing Saddles with President Screw. You know, with, you know, hey, he's more worried about the every other aspect than actually running things. Yep. And, I, can't, and, I can't make decisions. I'm a president. Exactly. Um, and I think Joan Rivers' performance at, as Dot Matrix is hilarious. Just some of the jokes I could see, you know, because you, you, everyone knows she's modeled after C-3PO, right? Yep. So it, you could totally see that being like the two of those interacting and wondering what those conversations would be. Cause she does such a great job The the jokes are funny. The, um, what is it? The Virgin alarm, good, good yeah. Virgin alarm, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, just, she did a wonderful performance and it's just her voice. Yeah. That's the it, thing. There's, it, it no, so there's no facial animations. There's no, you know, there's I mean, just blinking lights. Movement. Yeah. Just yes, blinking yeah. lights in the eyes. And that's basically it. Right, exactly. And she delivered a genius performance just speaking. Yep. A lot of just like, in very much that C-3PO role, right? Like the, I just tag on something to the end of whatever just happened and it's automatically more funny because mm-hmm. of the, the comment that I made at the end. And I also remember like not really understanding the virgin alarm the first time I saw this movie. Like I'm just uh, like, I guess. they can't kiss. I don't know why. <laughs> like, I, don't, I have no idea what the Virgin Alarm means. They're from Virginia. I don't know. I, I'm totally confused. <laughs> yeah, those are great. I have a, a, a couple oddball ones, um, and this this kind of frames where I was at in 1987. So first off, I loved Vinny because he yes. reminded me of Max Headroom because he yes. was doing the whole Max Headroom thing. And I was like, yes. Was, I was that kid in elementary school with, like, the Max Headroom T-shirt. Like, I loved Max Headroom, and so it was so great. To be like, that's Max Headroom. So that was absolutely great. Like one of and my favorite things. To be fair, the line or else pizza is going to send out for you is a brilliant, brilliant line. And so 80s. <laughs> like so 80s because no one would have any idea what that means in, in this day and age. you know. But then it was like, oh, my God, send it out for pizza. I totally get it. And, yeah, it was that was just a great line. And then I, I have to piggyback on Andy slightly, but yogurt – is amazing like he is effectively you know he's the deus ex machina of this film but in a incredibly hilarious way and drives so much of the spoofing that goes on whether it's the schwartz whether it's the merchandising he's got the liquid schwartz at the end which is just so ridiculous he's got the uh the oompa loompa kind of guys who are supposed to be the um the uh oh my god why is the name of Jawas the, thank you jawas come you know the jawas from star wars but they're like hilarious because he's got this like disneyland vibe like that whole section of the movie is so hilarious to me. I cannot stop laughing when he drops the stat when Lone Star drops the statue on uh, onto the on his foot. Like you know, there's just so hilarious and and like we haven't really talked about it a whole lot. But Barf and John Candy, like while there's it, 
it's played like you would expect like Chewbacca to be, right? Which is who he's supposed to be modeled after. But there's never any standout scene. It's just he's the perfect kind of like sidekick for all the action that's going on. It's an amazing supporting role. And I feel bad to put John Candy in the idea of a supporting role, but you're right. Barf doesn't have as much um, presence when he's not basically playing off of everyone else in the film. Yes, he, he really is. Uh, he's just there to enhance. He's enhancement talent. <laughs> but, you know, he, he really is there to just kind of make everybody funnier. And he does an amazing job at it. And there's a, From the second, you know, they run into the princess all the way through the movie, does a really, really good job of it, Andy. And it's, it's, it is a shame because John Candy was absolutely hilarious in almost everything that he did. But he's he's almost like the underappreciated piece of this whole thing. He does a really good job of just being, I, I almost want to say glue, but not quite. Because he's always there. He's always making quips. He's always like, I don't know. It's, it's really, I'm kind of at a loss right now. Because it just it's one of those performances that, like you said, he doesn't do anything stand out. But you know he's there. And it's funny every time he's there. Yep. Yeah. It's really, really, really well done. So many, and, and we haven't even touched on so many things. Like there's ludicrous speed and going plaid. Like that was so incredibly awesome. Um, they're going into hyperactive. You know, the, the, of course, the entire last like five minutes of the movie is great. Like when everybody's emptying out as it's about to self destruct and you've just got ran, you got the bearded lady. Bearded, I was going to say random bearded lady. You got random bearded lady. You got the, what, the monk, the gorilla playing. Uh, you have the gorilla. You have the, uh, t- the, uh, what the hell are they called? The Tiffany Tiffany player. player. Yeah. You got the Tiffany player. And then like the whole transforming maid and she's gone from suck to blow. Like there's just so many Another good joke we didn't get as children. And another joke I was like, I, I don't really understand, but sure. It's funny. I get it. And, and you know, obviously like the planet of the apes thing at, at the end, like just there is, we could literally just sit here and recount every moment of the entire movie. I cannot think of any part of this that did not contain something either with a notable quote or a notable pun or some sort of scene. I mean, Joe, this really is from just beginning to end a wonderful movie to the point where, I mean, outside of like Monty Python and the Holy Girl, I can't think of another movie that just makes such good use of its entirety. There is, there is no downbeats. There is nothing but... Like you said, there's so many quotes. This is probably one of the most quoted movies among my friends. And that says a lot because we're all really big, geeky nerds. But, like, there's always a joke. And it fits even, like, in the current day. Like, it's still relevant today. It's relevant, you know, almost 20 years later, 30 years later. It's it's that it, it's still good. And I love the fact that you, I have nothing bad to say about this movie. I have nitpicked movies in the past or movies that I've rewatched as a kid, you know, from my childhood as an adult. And I was like, Oh, why, why the hell did I like this? Oh, okay. There's problems here. I, why was this ever a thing? And then I look at this even now, even 26 years later, I still fucking love this movie. Yep. And I, as someone who's like, I'm a massive transformers fan, massive transformers fan, but I will nitpick most transformers stuff. I can't find a single thing wrong with this movie. It, it's just, it, it, it has endeared to me so much. And even like Back to the Future, you know, which we just got done talking about last episode. I, I love Back to the Future too. 
Like that was like a, such a squee moment for me as a kid thinking the future is going to be like that. But I can still nitpick that movie to death. I got nothing bad to say about any of this. This is just I, I hold this movie, Andy, so near and dear because it is such a huge part of my childhood. Well, yeah, <clears throat> it was a huge part of I mean, mine. Hell, it was it came out. I was in seventh grade. And I've always had a copy of it somewhere nearby because, you know, no matter what's going on, any day, time, I need a good, good laugh, something that I know is going to, you know, either bad day, whatever. That's kind of the go to because, you know, you're going to sit there, you're going to laugh, you're going to enjoy it, you're going to get all the references. And every time I watch it, it always seems like I either remember something, you know, a little Easter egg hidden in there that I may have forgotten or I find something that I'm like, oh. Well, that makes sense now. Or I get it. You know, I get a new joke or something. It's there's always something there for me to watch, no matter how many times I've seen it, no matter, you know, how long I've watched it. It's there's always something there that just cracks you up. Yeah, it's just it's absolutely amazing. So we would be remiss not to go through some trivia like we like to do on this particular show. So all sorts of cool little tidbits. John Candy ad lib the lino. That's going to leave a mark, which I think we all. I I, I got to give him credit. That is probably the most memorable line, which seems kind of silly. But when he goes to get up out of his seat, oh, that's going to leave a mark. Like we we kind of all remember that. The uh, Millennium Falcon makes a cameo appearance appearance outside the space diner at the end of the film, mm-hmm. which is awesome. Uh, Rick Moranis is the reason John Candy got hired for the role of Barf. Talking, you know, like we talked about earlier, with all the comedians kind of banding together. All the voice changing stuff between when the mask up and the mask down for Dark Helmet was all Rick Moranis's idea, which you know lending back to that that absolute brilliance. Um, President Scrooge is an anagram of Mel Brooks, you know, kind of makes sense. And we didn't even talk about like Pre- President Scrooge is hilarious. He's just kind of comic relief, and he acts he plays like the role of the Emperor Wood, you know, in the Star Wars films. Um, him getting beamed is hilarious. The comment by uh, the other command, the female commander, who's like, "Scotty beamed me twice last night, and it was amazing." <laughs> like again, another joke that I didn't get. I was like, "Okay, sure." I was just laughing because you could see his own big ass, but you know, there was obviously other funny parts. There are this, six. This is an unlisted wall. Yes, yes, it's an unlisted wall. Six complete dot matrix suits were built for the movie. So that, that's interesting that there are six of those out there. Uh, Barf's costume was operated by three people. It took three people to operate Barf. John Candy operated his tail using a hidden control in the paw while two assistants each controlled an ear. And Candy's costume was powered by a 30-pound battery he had to have strapped to his back. Mm. Comedy that's, is physical labor, folks. wonderful. That is I, like, I was honestly going to say it's like, what, left ear, right ear, and tail? And what, he's offering the tail on his own? That's wonderful. It's so 80s. He needed a 30-pound battery to, to do that, and now we can like carry the entire world around in our pocket and on an iPhone. Just kind of nuts. Um, I didn't actually know this. Did you know that there was a Spaceballs The Book by R.L. Stein? Yep. That's mm-hmm. crazy. Um, I'm see. sorry. Please, please repeat that for the sake of anybody who did what I did and like, almost had a spit take there. By R.L. Stein. Yes, R- the infamous R.L. Stein. What so wrote what is a it, novelization. Is it like the, the no- yeah, the novel adaptation of the, yep. of the movie? Yes, and he gave all the dinks names. Rinky Dink, Blinky Dink, Stinky Dink, Pinky Dink, Thinky Dink, uh, and Winky Dink, which is just, uh, it just tells you the quality <laughs> that that uh, novelization has to be. Almost. I, I don't. I don't know if I'm going to have to find a copy of this book and then find R.L. Stein so that I can hit him over the head with it and then ask him to sign it. 
unfortunately, well, I just gave George Lucas credit. I'm now going to be mad at him because he is the sole reason that no Spaceballs merchandise was ever released because he had a fair use agreement with Mel Brooks and therefore could not produce a single ounce of Spaceballs merchandise to the point where even all the merchandise that appeared in the film was actually Transformers merchandise with Spaceballs logos stuck on top of them. Ooh. Damn you, George Ooh. Lucas. I could have got my plushy yogurt if it weren't for you. <laughs> Damn bastard. Uh, let's see. Well, you know, I wonder if that could be revisited now that George Lucas sold the rights. Yeah. If there's only one person less likely to give up the rights than George Lucas, it's probably it's Disney. Disney. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know what would be brilliant, though? Hmm. It will never happen. But one thing I would love to see, you know how they're doing the uh, uh, Disney Infinity and the most recent set has been Star Wars? We need Could you helmet. imagine if they had like a uh, like a Lone Star and a Dark Helmet figure to put on your Disney Infinity uh, uh uh, consoles. I would crack my screen throwing my credit card at the computer <laughs> if that were to happen. I'd be like, give me all of them. Um, something I didn't actually know. I got the, the part. So this is like a two-layer joke. So Princess Vespa, um, obviously Vespa being like the Italian scooter, but it's also Italian for wasp, which of course we know what wasp yes. is in North American slang. So that was that's an awesome like double entendre there. So uh, kudos well, she for that was one. was Druish after all. Yes, she was Druish. But she doesn't look Druish. <laughs> Oh, my God, the quotes are flying left and right. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, we had the Winnebago, which was officially licensed from Winnebago to be in the movie. Uh, that's, that's of course, always good to know. Um, the breakfast cereal box, Spaceballs breakfast cereal, contains 100% sugar, <laughs> which, is to- which would have been totally fine for us in the 80s because I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. all <laughs> cereal in the 80s was uh, 100% sugar. Yeah, you, you lucky bastards who actually got sugary cereal. Some Tom- of us didn't. Yeah, well, man, you lived a horrible childhood. We'll talk some, about that. We should have some an ways, inti- yes. We should talk about your childhood on a, on a separate episode because it's also the same reason why I'm having trouble finding Nickelodeon partners. Because, Would that be like his exit interview? Yeah, yeah. So this is why you're being fired because you don't like Doug, and Doug is the best thing that has ever happened. Um, it's so, not that I don't dislike Doug. It's I have no idea what Doug even – well, I mean, I know what he is, but I never saw any episodes. Same difference. Same That's difference not my me. fault. Same difference to me. Uh, Tom Cruise and Tom, or Tom Hanks both were considered for Captain Lone Star. That would have been horrible. Um, Steve Martin, however, was the original choice for Colonel Sanders. That would have been amazing. God, yes, that would have been wonderful. That would have been wonderful. Um, still expertly done, but you know, still like mm-hmm. that would have been so much better. Uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, I think that's it. Oh man, I mean, we could go on for days reading all these. So I don't even know if this part of the show is necessary, <laughs> but we're going to do it because we got to stick and be consistent, guys. Does this hold up after thirty years? After 30 years, it's still my litmus test of whether or not I should stay in a relationship with somebody. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> well, I that think that sums the it up. Right there. That, that kind of sums to... it up. I, I can't stop. Just... I'm sorry. We just don't need to go any any further. That's it. It's done. Boom. No, no. I, <laughs> Mike drop. I, I would over. be remiss if, if I wasn't my uh, wet blanket, and I just need to ask this question out there. Uh, uh, not too long ago, Brian and I mentioned this. Uh, we had an offhanded comment about uh, uh, Aladdin from Disney and whether or not the, you know, the the bevy of Robin Williams jokes are going to age particularly well. I'm really curious as to how this film is going to be viewed in, say, 50 years. Who cares? Okay, yeah, who cares is, is a legitimate point. I can get that. Um, that's just kind of what I'm curious about, though. There are some things that are truly timeless. You know, we, we mentioned that pretty much anything... Uh, Hayao Miyazaki will hold up and withstand the test of time. I am honestly curious 
as if to as if to say, will the future generations enjoy this as much as we do? Because I want them to. It's just a question in, of will they? In fifty years, when this podcast is the only thing that they've listened to in reference to it, we will be single handedly responsible for the revitalization of spaceballs in the perfect society that was built upon its foundation. That's I love my prediction. It. I love it, and, and I have to challenge all our listeners. Look, if you want to be good parents. Let's just be honest here for a second. Here is your litmus test for good parents. Raise your children on the right media so that when you show them space balls, they get all the jokes. And they will turn out just fine. They might get picked on a little in high school, but you know what? People get picked on in high school will end up being the smart people that rule the world. So just remember that. And it's all because of space balls. And if they complain about the uh, special effects not being nearly as good as the more recent Star Wars films, then, well, I think you know what you need to do at that point. Exactly burn it to the ground so <laughs> you can find this pretty much everywhere it's on itunes it's on dvd it's on blu-ray it's on amazon it's on voodoo it's on netflix dvd sony it's on demand on pretty much every cable network look there is no excuse for you not to own this in at least three different formats just for redundancy in case something goes wrong mel brooks wants your money i'm just saying mm-hmm. like think about it like if if the internet dies tomorrow that blu-ray is going to come in very freaking handy so just make sure you got a backup copy because it the is internet dies tomorrow, we're keep all it in scary. constant vigilant, like constant vigilance. Keep it. Mine's three feet to my left right now. Like my bar, it's right next to my Barbie doll. That's where uh, Barbie doll, Spaceballs DVD. That that's how you keep it safe. I'm never gonna live this one down. I'm waiting for my girlfriend to listen to this episode, and I will be single once again. <laughs> I still have a Barbie doll. Oh man, has she been litmus yet? She has been litmus. That was a test very, very early on in the relationship. Okay. It's funny. See? Given, given Joe's joke, I was laughing hysterically because I See? actually made the comment to her. I remember sitting in her apartment. We had been dating for like two months. And I said, okay, this is the most important question I will ever ask you. Spaceballs. That's all I said. She was like, I love Spaceballs. All right. We are... And this is from a woman who did not grow up in the United States, so that should tell you. Like we, Spaceballs is multicultural, folks. It will bring the world together. You see, the funny thing is my litmus test is actually Princess Bride, which has also been referenced uh, not only on this podcast, but on this very show already. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to deny. It's also also a very, very good movie. Wow. So that's Spaceballs, guys. And that is uh, season one of Nostalgia Bomb. It's been an absolutely crazy season. I can't thank our listeners enough. We have grown literally every single week since the show launched. We broke 2,000 likes on our Facebook page, which is just like a whole lot of Facebooking. I'm not going to pretend like I use Facebook that much, but just like it's been an awesome outpouring. I have a inbox full of show ideas from people. You've been reaching out to us on Twitter, on Facebook. I mean, I think I speak for all of us when I say thank you so much for making this so much fun for us because if people weren't listening, it would just be like our normal lives where we talk to ourselves and our girlfriends ignore us. But <laughs> but it's been, it's been absolutely Absolutely incredible. Um, to that effect, I mentioned earlier in the show, we are going to be doing a season two. Um, it's going to be kicking off very, very soon. Uh, next week, we are actually going to have a couple holiday specials. Uh, Andy Blue and I are going to go through some of our favorite horror and Halloween theme specials because it's the week of Halloween and that's what you do in the 80s. And then we'll be kicking off season two in which Joe will be joining us on a full-time basis, which I'm incredibly stoked to have you on board, Joe. Dude, I am so excited. You have no idea. It's going to be. We're going to have a lot of litmus tests. We're just I'm gonna finally going to have somebody to talk to other than Brian. 
No, no, no. You've been fired. <laughs> Did you miss that memo at the beginning of the show? Did you not send that email, Brian? Is that still in your drafts folder? Uh, you I know, mean, I do I that all the time. <laughs> Joe's like, I, got, I could forward it to you if you would like to see it, Blue. So everybody will be back for season two. If you have ideas, Andy, for season two, where should they send them? They should send them. Well, first of all, you can always post them on Facebook. And they can send them to uh, the website at nostalgiabomb.co. We are at nostalgiabomb on Twitter. Uh, and you can pretty much find us, you know, just about anywhere and everywhere. We also have an email address, which is show at nostalgiabomb.co. That is awesome. In case you have been living under a rock or this is your first time listening to the show, had you been listening sooner, you would have had an opportunity to tell us your favorite show topic of the season and have a chance to win a prize pack themed around that particular topic. We'll be doing a similar giveaway for season two, hint, hint. So you might want to uh, jump on board as early as possible. Whew, that was a long hour, guys, but thank you so much for a great episode and a great season. It's been great working with you guys. I'm incredibly, incredibly pumped for season two. But that's going to do it for season one of Nostalgia Bomb. Thank you guys so much. We will see everybody in season two. Have a good night. <laughs>